welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today in our master series, I am joined again by the lovely Zena Hits. We have been doing a series on Preston Sturgis, the funniest comedian in old Hollywood. We've talked about his five most famous movies, Sullivan's Travels, The Lady Eve, The Palm Beach Story, Hail the Conquering Hero, and now we're doing The Miracle of Morgan's Creek. In these movies, Preston Sturgis satirizes Hollywood, the industrial aristocracy, small-town America, war fever, and in passing, offers comic solutions to all of America's problems. Love always wins in these stories, and modern American women and men manage to get along after many, many comical misunderstandings. But now let's turn to The Miracle of Morgan's Creek, Zina, last time we talked about Hail the Conquering Hero, and this is a natural sequel. They are both about small towns. They are both about Eddie Bracken, this perpetual 4F loser American who's very lovable, on the other hand, and has certain virtues. And we should pick up on the dark side of Sturgis and the dark side of America. You mentioned that you're intrigued by this capacity Sturgis has in his humanity to show or to glimpse, at least, certain dark things that we have to deal with, but we shouldn't face head on. So let's start there. Right. So Sturge's ability to handle dark themes, it makes me want to go actually to Miracle of Morgan's Creek. So in Miracle of Morgan's Creek, you get another story of a wartime failure. That is, you get a young woman who goes out one night to entertain the soldiers before they go away. She's a fun-loving woman. She likes to party. She likes to drink and dance and flirt. Once again, William Demarest, Nez, at first a comically overprotective father, but then he changes later on. He forbids her to go to this party. It's too dangerous and it's too late. And he doesn't trust soldiers because he was one. And what happens? She persuades the local 4F guy, also played by Eddie Bracken, to pretend he's taking her to the movies. Then she ditches him at the movies. She goes off to the party, and she's meant to pick him up the next morning, which, of course, turns out to be 8 a.m., shockingly late hour. The daylight is still going. She's drunk. She's driving his car. His car's a wreck, and it's pulling just married flyers after it. So what's happened is that in the heat of the partying with the soldiers, Trudy, the young woman, has been a part of a mass marriage, so to speak, not like the Moonies. But each soldier marrying one of the women, she can't remember who the soldier was. She's wearing a cheap wedding ring. So she's gotten married while blind drunk to someone who she doesn't know who they are. And Eddie Bracken is Norval. So he has this hilarious, you know, another week 4F name. Very much the opposite of a soldier. Skinny, neurotic, anxious, hopelessly in love with Trudy. And yet still he has a spine. I mean, he knows he's being treated badly and he fights back. But Trudy becomes pregnant. She's supposedly married to someone whose name she can't remember and who she has no idea how to find. This is a dark moment. This woman is left. She's in a position of shame in the community. That is, she's pregnant without having any visible husband. There's no record of the marriage. There's no record of the person. Her father, of course, it's his worst nightmare. It's exactly the thing he wanted to protect. But again, the whole situation, which is really something dark, namely she's been taken advantage of by soldiers. That's never said in the film, but it's evidently true. The marriage is a bit of a whitewash over a seduction of an extremely drunk woman who can't, is not in any position to handle the consequences of being seduced. 
because she's alone, young, and has no one to help her raise her child, apart from her younger sister and her father. So it's a very dark situation, again, handled delicately. And through the dint of some hilarious turns of plot, she ends up falling in love with Norval, the loser. Norval ends up pursuing these peacetime virtues determination and duty and courage and loyalty and truthfulness. And by dint of that, wins the girl, wins a commission. You know, he's decked out at the end with a sword and uniform that doesn't fit him properly. And he's the father of six children. She has sextuplets, as it turns out. And the birth of these children is a terror to the Axis. So, you know, Mussolini resigns and Hitler loses his mind at the prospect of these six boys being born to an American woman. So you have this light patriotic story and a story about being noble in peacetime, hiding over some things that are dark and difficult. But you never quite feel them that way because of Sturge's care with the details. So anyway, it's in that way, like Hail the Conquering Hero, you have stories about people who have failed, a woman who's failed to be virtuous, a man who's failed to be courageous or properly military virtue, and that somehow these failures, these losers, end up learning something important and getting the best things in life. Yeah, that seems to me like the common theme of both these films that is different from the other Sturgis films, and that is a really remarkable, I think, and subtle take on wartime America to see things from the perspective of the losers. Yeah, I think you're right that there's a lot going on in these stories that says, what is America really like? What are the problems here? How might we deal with things that are unpleasant in a way that leads to a happy end? Both stories show that law and love are at odds. And you could say that if you choose law, you're going to have a tragedy. And if you choose love, you're going to have a comedy. And so this one is, if possible, even more comic and emphasizes a woman rather than a man. Now, as we said, the Hell the Conquering Hero deals with the virtue of man, which is primarily understood to be manliness, more specifically patriotism or political manliness, because you might have to die for your country and you had better really love your mother and your hometown if somebody's going to ask you to die for their good. The virtue of a woman that corresponds to this could be called chastity, but is in fact a somewhat broader concern. The virtue of a woman would have to include homeliness and children. Because again, if you're going to ask men to die for something, it had better be worth their time. And at the same time, you can't go around killing men for nothing or treating women to political requirements for nothing. The next generation survival hope that life is good. That's got to be a big deal. And so there's a certain virtue required of women. And these are simply political requirements that you can manage to some extent, but you cannot get rid of. If you have a country where the men won't fight and the women won't have children, you run out of country in one generation tops. Them's the facts of life. But Preston Sturgis looks at this as a comedian. He's not here to emphasize law, but to achieve the objects of law by breaking the law. Right. He is a man of eros, just like his conquering hero is, in fact, not a hero. Right. But he is the political man everybody needs, though they can't quite see it. And by the way, there's a hint of this. Turns out that Woodrow is very good at giving political speeches, very good at homely speeches, very good at knowing who the people are, his relationship to them all his life. He's not a con artist, but he does have a skill as a rhetorician that goes together with his actual conduct. And further, he is an inheritor in a strange sense. In one moment, he says, my grandfather homesteaded where all this city is. My father was a war hero. He has inherited by a kind of hereditary right the mayoralty. 
that's an American in one sense, but you know, in another sense, it's just true. And so he's not nothing, but he's not a war hero. He's not sensational. He's not going to make the paper. So you know, you're going to have to deal with that. So also in this other case, the miracle of Morgan's Creek. Sextuplets are nothing to sneeze at. I mean, what will give people hope when there are so many men dying, except the hope that there is life after this, that human beings and the goodness and God's providence, in some sense, will take care of us. That the next generation will not even know the suffering that we suffer. They don't have to be darkened by our nightmares. That's very important. So he somehow manages to get to the fact that this is a shameless woman in Miracle of Morgan's Creek, Trudy is her name, very neatly by pointing out to the good that shamelessness might do, even if it's illegal. And unlike you, I have to say, I don't blame the soldiers so much. If you're a young American man who have never been prepared for all the slaughter, going off to war, wanting to get drunk and maybe make love to a young woman who is not only willing, but eager. She loves soldiers. Of course. No, no, no. That's is, true. Is, I mean, yeah. Would you really blame the guy? But on the other hand, you're right. He's living a woman who doesn't have a husband and who has been suckered and who's now going to have kids and who's humiliated. And she's also stupid. She's just a stupid girl. And when you're very beautiful, it's easy to be stupid because you tend to get what you want. Her father, who is a very tough Martinet disciplinarian, William Demarest, again, wonderful. Every time he tries to kick one of his daughters, he has a pratfall. That's right. They're very funny. And, you know, he tries to get them out of his lap, but they always sit in his lap. And when you have a daughter in your lap, you're in no position to say no. <laughs> These daughters, every time they want something, they'll get it. They will laugh or they'll cry or they'll ignore him because, you know, he was a tough guy. And he's an old man now and he doesn't have a wife. These daughters are the light of his eyes. He's a man of principle, but they give his life meaning and these girls know it. And like young girls, they're shameless because they know that their beauty and the fact that they're women means that they can get away with a lot. You know, things that a man might get punched about, not just thrown in jail, a woman could skate over. So it's very smartly chosen. It also reveals something that women in America have far more freedom than they ever had anywhere else, almost. The girls know it, and the older, who's barely 18, gets herself pregnant and married in this absolutely responsible way because she does not understand the facts of life. And in a way, it's not her fault. Partly just American freedom and the times of madness of the war. It's patriotic duty to dance with the soldiers. So one thing could lead to another. And in America, you just go to a justice of the peace, as we see in the movie Norval failed to do. He even right. fails at that. But <laughs> you just go to a justice of the peace and there are no questions asked because it's the land of the free. So what are you going to do? So the home of the brave land of the free between these two soldier marriages are just going to happen. We see them in the papers. War marriages. These are going to be a problem, the story tells us. Indeed. But unlike the editor, the poet Sturgis thinks, you know, this could also be a solution, not just a problem, if you think about it the right way. And so this woman loves the soldiers and she has all this love of fun. She loves to dance. She loves to have a good time. And she doesn't have a mother to have taught her the facts of life and to restrain her. A father couldn't restrain her because a daughter is what a father has to look forward to in his old age. You see these girls who constantly make fun of their father. At the same time, you can tell in every scene how much they rely on him, what a trust they have in America and in life because there's this guy always there. That's what makes his life worth living. But the mother could restrain them by, you know, female wisdom, by a certain prudence. And there's none of that. And so they run wild. And as beautiful as the 18-year-old, the 14-year-old sister is smart and ruthless. She doesn't want boyfriends. She's not yet overcome by love. And therefore, she is not softened. 
Not only is she not going to get herself pregnant because she was persuaded drunk by soldiers, she is in fact going to persuade some loser, Eddie Bracken, <laughs> to marry this woman and become the father. <laughs> she will do any deception. She will sucker anybody because she's all youthful, ruthless intelligence because you can get away with it. And since it's the land of the free, it's the home of the daring, not to say reckless. So why not? And then this problem comes that the older sister doesn't want to sucker this guy. She's humiliated him so much. He's such a loser that he tells her about how he took up sewing classes and all sorts of female <laughs> school subjects just to be with her. He's a goddamn puppy, not a man. And the more pathetic he seems, she begins to love him. And there you see something in her that must have been true of the soldiers too. It wasn't just the uniforms. She sensed their desperation, their fear of death. She has a mothering instinct. And by the way, this was true of the portrayal in Hell the Conquering Hero too. We see Ella Reigns in that movie who never quite had a career but she has this beautiful film and she loves being by the side of Woodrow when he's successful and acclaimed by the city. It's just intoxicating. She can reflect his greatness and what woman doesn't like an impressive man? But then he becomes weak and miserable and she sees his suffering and she begins to love him truly again. Because now she can be sort of mothering. See, I, I interpret it differently. So I think that Trudy, it's not so much his weakness, which after all is evident from the beginning. I mean, he's always a weakling. He's always a 4 -er. He's always got the weak chin and the thin hair and the, the pale face. And he's always hopelessly in love with her. That's how the whole plot can take place. If he weren't hopelessly in love with her, he would never, ever have put himself through this humiliating ordeal of going on a fake date and then being the sort of fake date to cover over her misdeeds. I think what changes is actually her vulnerability. That is, she's suddenly left in a kind of terror. That is, she doesn't, as it turns out, her father, William Demarest, is a stand-up guy. He turns to protect her. He doesn't drive her out of the house. But she doesn't quite know that at the beginning. Because he's such a martinet, he's so such a disciplinarian, and it's his worst possible fear. It's the thing he's spent every bit of energy he has as a father trying to fight is one of his daughters getting in trouble in exactly this way. He's a former soldier, so he remembers what soldiers are like, and he can't communicate that to his daughters for the reasons you're suggesting. You need a mother somehow to mediate that. He can't communicate how bleak and ruthless male sexuality can be. It wouldn't be appropriate for him to do it. Someone else has to mediate, and that someone else is not there. So Trudy stumbles blind into the trap. I don't want to be too severe on the men. And I think after all in the film, we are, I think I meant to see William Demarest as someone who somehow keeps the whole thread of manly vice and virtue together. So he's been a soldier when he was young and may have gotten some hapless woman pregnant who he doesn't know who she is. And he also is a protective father, even brutally protective. And then he's also a caring, protective person, right? someone who accepts what's happened who sticks by loyally his daughter even when she's done something dumb and helps her to find her way and supports her in this crazy scheme of marrying normal. So I don't want to be hard on them, but I, it is also, I think, you know, you're left to wonder. On the one hand, she seems blamed in the point of view of the film. Well, why didn't she get the guy's name, her husband's name? But you also might wonder, well, why isn't this husband leaving a card with his name and address and phone number and way of contact with the woman he's married, right? 
Now, maybe he's also just too drunk to remember, or maybe he'd rather that she didn't get in touch. Maybe he's done this before. Maybe the marriage is a bit of a scheme, and maybe it'd be to his interest and in his benefit if it was lost forever. He, after all, gets what he wants and without any of the responsibilities attached. So that that's part of the picture, I think, in the background. That's part of the ways that Trudy is reckless and not recognizing this, not knowing this about men. But, you know, she is, after all, 18 years old. And it reminds me a bit of what we were saying about Conquering Hero. That is, there's this darkness of war that gets sentimentalized in the popular culture with these war marriages and this, you know, oh, the boys are going overseas and we've got to show them a good time. And, oh, I've got to give this guy something to come home to. So let's get married. There's a darkness in it, which is, as you're saying, these men are facing death, violent death away from home. They're facing the prospect of terrible scenes that will haunt them for the rest of their lives if they do survive. Sex and partying, making love to a beautiful young woman, this is all part of the consolations of the soldier, right? This is somehow what makes the prospect of death bearable. But on the other hand, it is not in keeping with civil society. Like, that's not how you can function in a society. You need accountability. You need marriages. You need someone to stick around for the sake of raising the children and supporting the children. And that's all kind of thrown to the winds because of the war, which is, on the one hand, romanticized, but on the other hand, absolutely destructive to the needs of peacetime society in just the way that we see in the film. So once again, it's Sturges pointing our faces at something about war that is really disruptive, counter to our fundamental values in peacetime in a variety of ways, but yet with this beautiful, light, poetic touch where all of the possible problems which would be there in ordinary life and which are present in some way, the woman could be totally abandoned, she could be kicked out of the house by her father, she could marry Norval without being in love with him. I mean, this is not an unimaginable prospect, just for the sake of having an income to support her children. Or Norval could be himself a cruddy person instead of a beautiful, loyal, courageous, loving man who will stick by Trudy no matter what, which is what she needs at this moment in her life. She needs that total fidelity, devotion, the prospect of partying. The joy of partying has been instantly sucked away. The worst thing that could have possibly happened to her in a night of drunkenness has happened to her. And bam, you know, all of a sudden she wants peacetime, middle-aged type of life. But anyway, it's wonderful that somehow Sturgis, again, he can show you these things show you the underside of your mainstream patriotic wartime culture, but in a way that's sweet and gives you hope and makes you admire good things about real people and just gives you the consolation of this fantasy that somehow the loser guy, Eddie Bracken, he's not going to be a loser. He's got all the right stuff. He's going to get the most beautiful woman. He's going to be a father of six. He's going to get a commission so that the shame of not being a soldier is taken away. He gets the love of the woman, not just her grudging consent. So everything works out. You know, in a way, the ending of Palm Beach Story with the magical twins who solve the problem is kind of Sturgis's stock element. It's always just the problem is magically solved, but you never quite resent him for it because on the way he's shown you some real darknesses and some real resolutions, even if the way they fit together is not quite real. I think you're right. I mean, first of all, comedy by definition requires a certain impossibility. That's what makes comedy comedy. You couldn't get to a solution otherwise. But as you also say, those impossibilities reveal very important two things. They're not made up for the sake of a happy end. The happy end is for the sake of revealing something important about America and indeed about human nature. 
that beautiful young women and brave young men might have sex has always been the case. And of course, every society has to deal with that problem precisely because, as you say, there are consequences and they are worse for the woman than the man. But in America, women can be as irresponsible or more irresponsible than men. That's part of freedom. Now, you could get very moralistic about this, or you could be a comedian like Preston Sturgis and say, you're not likely to change the character of American women. You could deal with it better, but not likely change it. The sexual shamelessness of the older sister and the intellectual shamelessness of the younger sister are both shameless signs of what American women are like. Now, partly you could say it's because they're out of a job. One reads in Tocqueville that the American woman was not just flirty and spirited, but resigned to the suffering of the pilgrim life. Well, the pilgrim life is over, but you still have young spirited women bred for centuries. You're going to have to deal with it in an intelligent way. Preston Sergis is pointing to the need for a certain correction to the edification of moral Christian small-town America. By the way, the small-town stories make sense because it was only circa 1920 that the census recorded there were slightly more Americans in the urban than in the rural areas. It was still a predominantly rural or small-town country, and therefore it came with a certain edification that is now, of course, inconceivable. The idea of not having sex before marriage or shaming women who are single mothers. Today, women are lionized for being single mothers. One wonders whether they are happy, but actually nobody asks or talks about it publicly. That is forbidden. It's the new American way, where the old American way was different, and Preston Sturgis pointed out that it needed correction. And you have two obvious possibilities when it comes to correction, and he picks the comic one. He suggests you shouldn't ask too much of people, but offer them some solutions that they are not aware of themselves. You're not going to transform American women into nuns. What you could do is make them a bit smarter. But I don't understand what you said, because, of course, they're already very intelligent, right, the, the Preston Sturgis women. I mean, Trudy is remarkable. She's the dumbest of all the Sturgis leads, but she has this younger sister who's cooperating with, you know, who lights up the screen. That's exactly the point. Diana Lynn plays this younger sister who is 14, but she's just, every scene she's in, you can see that she's judging everybody and she's mostly getting things right. People are constantly failing her, right. but not necessarily failing her expectations because she's looking down on them. Right. In fact, she's a mother to her older sister. That's right. Yeah. You're right that Preston Sturgis has this super intelligent women, but that's the point. That is the poetic correction. Right. You need more intelligence in your women and not more submissiveness. Right. Outside of Preston Sturgis movies, this is a rare idea. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yes, yes, yes. Howard Hawks or Leo McCary, George Cukor or Mankiewicz. There are four or five directors and writers who are all about this. The modern American woman needs to be smarter than she is, not stupider, needs to be better educated, not less. But that education is not going to come out of the peculiar pieties of liberal elites. It's going to come out of poetry, out of people who are very clever about human affairs and not too shameful about noticing certain facts of life, including single mother. Well, and the love of the hustle also, right? This is part of what the Sturges women have. They have the American love of the hustle. So that's the type of intelligence. It's a, a ruthless prudential. I mean, there's the, the ruthless observational capacities too. They know what's going on. They know what's what. They know who's who. They see through illusions, but they're also playing a game to get ahead. So it's interesting. In Miracle Morgan's Creek, I think it's you've divided the women into two instead of having these gorgeous, brilliant women like Barbara Stanwyck and Lady Eve or Veronica Lake in Sullivan's Travels or I've forgotten her name or Jerry of Palm Beach Story. You get two women one of whom is a kind of a hard partying drip, and the other is this brilliant but non-sexual younger sister. 
yeah, but I think you're right that he, he said he's certainly honoring the American woman for her freedom, her ingenuity, and her disregard for conventional morality, which always wins in the end in these Sturgis films. But it wins through the back door, so to speak. It wins, you know, the law wins by the law being broken and by the law being broken, being covered over by stories, by love, by mercy, by acceptance, all of the things which we, you know, perpetually need more of, we human beings. So it's, uh, I, I'm sure he's not a moralist, but I think he does understand the truth that, I mean, I think a moralist like myself can make use of him and that he understands that flourishing human lives require handling people as they are, which is this lawbreakers, and that you wouldn't really want it any other way. You wouldn't want staid, conventional, boring rule followers. Those don't come off well. Nothing happens when they're when they're in the lead. Yeah, that's right. He is a comedian, right. not a moralist. He is not a stickler. He is not particularly sentimental, but he's neither cynical nor immoral. Right. You know, he's a man very aware of how much corruption there is in America, of the downsides, but he's also amused and sometimes enjoys these things. He understands that our most pious sentiments aren't the whole truth about who we are, and they cannot be the law by which we live. And so you see here that the younger sister who is all wit and shamelessness and she's all about encouraging the older sister to abuse and abuse the sweet but silly Norval, she gets cut out of the plot in the right. third act. She is there just now to notice and to suffer along. She has to be chastised morally to suffer her sister's fate by proxy, even though she's innocent of it, because of all her bad advice. She needs to understand that you live the life you have, you have to stick with the character you have, and that there will be consequences in America. You cannot outsmart your way out of everything, whatever you think about how much smarter you are than everybody else. The sisters have to learn to appreciate the moralism of their father. That is the best in American moralism. Their father can seem like a cruel man, and, you know, he would be, I think, too conservative for your taste, but there's a lot to be said for him. It's precisely his ferocity that makes him a good father, because he will protect his daughters again and again and again, and it, he made sure that they might be doing stupid things, but they won't be harming people. Their irresponsibility is limited. He's not a bad man. You know, you see in the small town the evils of American moralism, the cruelty, the desire to punish people, and how it encourages some very respectable criminals to get what they want under cover of respectability, like the banker who destroys both Norval and this war hero father who is the town constable. Right. There is an ugly side of moralism. It asks too much and delivers too little to American life. It pretends that good intentions or the pretense of good intentions will suffice. Right. But it doesn't. Just like the younger sister has to be taught that you can't be too clever by half all the time. So also, there is this other matter. The father has to be taught that all the moralism doesn't succeed. And indeed, he keeps shouting at the girls, this house isn't paid for. And the smart daughter says, you say that every day. And he notices, but it doesn't work. Later in the movie act, too, because of the crisis, it's upgraded to twice a day. Yeah. And the situation is the same. <laughs> exhortation, moral exhortation doesn't necessarily work. You might sometimes need, instead of cruelty or more exhortation, a clever solution to the problem. And so you need an education. You need to show people by their experiences that they could do better, but also have their experiences punish them enough that they learn better. 
and both the older and the younger sisters in certain ways are punished by the events of the story so that they realize that they should not be as irresponsible as they are in their moral and intellectual respective ways. The father has to suffer for the fact that he was too proud of his moralism as though that would be enough, but the daughters have to suffer for the fact that they mocked him and they didn't realize what the consequences would be. Everybody has to be educated and this is America. You have to let people suffer to some extent so that they realize for themselves and freely, yeah, I screwed up, I should do better. You can't force it into them. You, nobody has that authority to tell people, just don't. Right. People will just do sometimes and then learn to live with it. And therefore, the need for comedy arises. Let's say something bad happens. How could you bring it to a happy end? A comedian could do that. Let's say somebody suffers something and does something shameful and this humiliates or loses their reputation. How could you deal with it? Comedically. Encourage people to be laughing at this stupid girl rather than be cruel. Right. Preston Sturgis wants to educate the American audience to say, don't try to ruin her and learn to see her as a mother. Right. I think that's really interesting to see her as a mother. I, I think that there's a bit of it. I think it's also how I understand the father. It may be one of the reasons why this film is maybe not to the level of greatness of the others. It is great, but maybe not quite to the same level. And I think part of it is that the characters have a second dimension that emerges once the crisis has been made clear. So you have the hard partying Trudy who becomes the vulnerable mother. And that maybe is a bit of a stretch. We can see it happen, and it's real enough, but the transition point is hidden from us, maybe, a bit more than it should. We have the father, William Demarest, who's a severe character. It seems to me you don't know at the beginning of the film how he's going to react when he finds out she's pregnant. So that violence and severity that he shows, its upshot isn't clear. It isn't clear whether it's going to end in harsh judgment or in acceptance. So then you get the other side of him, which is actually he loves his daughters. He was just hoping for something better for them. And he knew what they were out there against because he's a man himself and a former soldier. And he wanted to protect them. But once the battle's done, it's done. And you've got to live with it and make a life out of it anyway. So th that dimension. And then Norval, of course, this total drip in the first part, becomes somehow a man who can protect and defend this woman who he loves. And that too, so it, there are these changes in perspective over the course of the film that are generated by the crisis of the pregnancy. On the one hand, they work in that they help us to think about the things that we've been talking about. But it's true that there's just a bit of a disconnect, that those changes are a little bit, the hinge is a little thin or something like that. I don't know how else to put it. And the younger sister, I'm less sure, she, I guess, turns from a schemer to also a supporter. So she develops a little more warmth. She's not just all about the hustle. So in that sense, she changes a bit the way Eve does in Lady Eve. So the younger sister's problem is that she thinks self-interest is the only thing that matters. Or she lives that way. That seems right. Yeah. She's never hurt anybody. She doesn't do bad things, but she thinks dangerous thoughts. But she has to realize that you can't change people's character by a clever plan. But doesn't she succeed? This is the part of why I don't understand what you're saying about her. Not her. She tells her sister to be a schemer, and her sister, faced with the innocence and the rampant stupidity even of Norval, tells the truth instead because she cannot bear the shameful thought of being as shameless as her sister. It's nice in the planning, you're faced with the emergency, she's got a social crisis on her hands, as a personal crisis too, but... She tells the truth to Norval. She tells the I truth. I see. So it's because the sister advises just marrying him and... Uh, the... By lies. Right. 
to deceive him and to deceive him for the rest of his life. And Trudy can't do that. She may be stupid, but she's not a wicked person. And she understands that you cannot lie to a man throughout his life. Right. That unwillingness to push lies that far is what is necessary for the younger sister to begin to learn that being very clever and telling the right story doesn't change the world. That there is a world of deeds out there that is different to the world of speeches. In your mind, you can come up with a perfect solution. But in reality, you will run into people's characters. And self-interest is not the only thing that counts. A sense of shame also counts. Right. And you see something there. So what does love of soldiers mean? In a sense, it's their young men full of drama and romance. And in America, there's just very little of that. There's the opportunity, finally, under cover of patriotism, you could go for dancing, have fun, maybe even go too far. But there's something else to it, too, that soldiers are covered in patriotism, which is tied up with everybody's fear and in a way even shame that these young men have to suffer on our behalf. Right. And there is a certain side to Trudy that is motherly and noble and has a sense of shame. Her problem is to reattach that to Norval rather than to these soldiers who are coming and going. Right. She has to learn to prefer her own over the foreign. I mean, everybody's an American, but these soldiers are just coming into town. They're a temporary invading force right. and they're going away. Right. You're never going to see them again, as you very well pointed out. And she has to be reminded. Norval tells her this story that persuades her because it's true. Suddenly she noticed that which she had not noticed before, that he was always there, that his steadiness has something almost magical to it. This man has a power to withstand adversity that she simply lacks and that her sister lacks too. She thinks she's so clever, but she's never had to face hardship. It's easy to be that clever when everything works your way. It's when adversity hits, as you see in the latter half of the movie, which is very different. All of a sudden you see who bears adversity well and who does less well than that. And you see the old sergeant, he bears well under adversity. You can fire him take away his pension and ruin his reputation. But his integrity is not compromised because he knows that Norval is not a bad person. The rapprochement between the very witty sergeant who comes up with all sorts of clever illegal plans and Norval, who is even more innocent than the law requires, right, right. is based on their common integrity. That is to say, they are both willing to sacrifice on behalf of others. Right. The love they share for Trudy unites them. Right, that's right. And that is a very touching, very Preston Sturgis moment. Right. You think, you know, he's such a cynical guy. He's not cynical at all. He realizes that this is a true thing about men. They're not that bad. Right. And, you know, the bumbler and the conniver could actually be united in love and that they will both be willing to be sacrificial and protective. Trudy herself learns to bear well under suffering. She prepares to become a mother and is willing to accept the loss of everything she had. She was just going to be a debutante and all, you know, glamour and glory. You see how she was dressed up before. You see all this stuff. It's all gone. But she does not regret it or mourn it or become bitter or any of that. And you see, there were certain resources in her, in that love of the beautiful, that were simply never available because motherhood was always going to be the greatest thing for her. Not having a mother, she didn't realize it. The implication here being that one reason young women obey their mother is out of admiration, that they see how much a mother knows and does and all these things. But she didn't have that, so it took her shocks to realize what it means to prepare for this. So I want to say that it has had really helped me in these conversations to see, and I had not seen it so much in Morgan's Creek until now, but in all of these films, the connivers are really heroic. So I don't think I'd understood and there's this parallel in Miracle of Morgan's Creek between the father, William Demarest, and the younger sister. 
are both conniving to help these two hapless people who are incapable of making good decisions for themselves to help them to find where their self-interest really lies. And it's funny because I think you're meant to think at the beginning, oh, Trudy and Norval are very different. I mean, Norval's a loser and Trudy's beautiful and, and popular and successful and can do anything. But in fact, they're very similar. They're very innocent, naive, and helpless. They need these conniving family members to get them on track. And that way, it reminds me a bit of Palm Beach story where, you know, Tom and Jerry have got to set things straight for these millionaires who just do not know what they're doing. You know, they're just sort of rolling through life haplessly, you know, and one of them never marries and the other ones gets married a hundred times and they don't know how to spend their money and they don't know what to do. And they need these hustlers to get them straight. Or, you know, of course, the Lady Eve, which I, I still think is the pinnacle of Preston Sturges. Barbara Stanwyck is absolutely the heroine. Henry's fondness life would be worthless without this conniving, lying, cheating, gambling woman to set him straight. They're beautiful stories about how love can transform ruthless, hustling, practical reason, conniving, uh, all the lies and all the deception and all the lawbreaking that entails and can, yeah, can create beautiful, beautiful things, beautiful stories, uh, real reconciliation. Anyway, it's been wonderful talking to you about these films. So thank you so much. Uh, I've learned a lot. I thank you for saying that, Zina. I, I've also had the chance to think about these things. You know, I looked over my Sturgis movies for this series of conversations. I've had them around for half my life or so, but I never engaged with them in the way we have together now. And I think you're right that uh, you see how Sturgis shows this humanity in America. It's just human nature. In a way, clever people are lowly because they're always calculating self-interest. But in a way, they're high because rationality has a kind of universality. You can figure out problems, even if it's not for your own good, if it's for the good of somebody else. But you see a similar ambiguity in morality. In a way, a moral person is like the father in Miracle of Morgan's Creek. You know, you ferociously protect your own and you don't care about strangers. William Demarest will punch anybody who's against his daughter, never mind her own recklessness. But in another way, morality shows nobility that you're willing to suffer for somebody else, even if it's no good to you, even in sustaining harm. And life is full of uncertainty. You're not going to win everything. You need both smarts and morality. That's a requirement of American marriage because American marriage has a lot of equality and friendship given American equality and freedom. Stuff is going to go bad now and then. You need somebody who you can trust, even when you're not glamorous, even when you're not socially respectable. But in turn, you need somebody whom you can respect, somebody who will not abuse or, or do wicked things. So you see, all these characters have to face up at some point because of their crisis that sometimes you will need to get everything out in the open. You can't lie for the rest of your life. Who will you trust? Who will be there for you? These are things that everybody nowadays in America will have to deal with. Now, of course, in closing, we should add that Miracle of Morgan's Creek is the one time when Sturgis points to his old movies. You get The Great McGinty, the story of political corruption, of a demagogue rising in America from bum, literally, to governor of a Midwestern state, of all things. And he's crucial to the plot. Brian Don Levy plays him. He's got his even more corrupt sort of mafioso fixer, Akim Tamirov. And they're very important at the beginning, at the beginning of the third act, to get things going. That too shows that there's a certain morality in America. This guy who was, you know, some kind of criminal becomes governor. He was always in a certain way American. 
He was once criminal, now he's doing dirty, shady deals as criminals in political office do, as we often see in America. But he was in certain ways guided by morality and even public spirit. There's an ambiguity about these things always, but he is not a wicked person or a tyrant because there's a certain strange power to American morality. It's not just that it will take American movies to a happy end. It's that it takes people to lives that are fairly decent. It's underrated, and you can't talk too much about it without being sentimental and so forth. But the point is that it's real, it's there. A certain power to morality that, however clever you get as a writer, director like Kristen Sturgis, you should never neglect. Yes. So it's a proof that, you know, that's how you should think in America. You might have to cut some corners, but you should always be guided by the principles of American justice. Well, anyway, it's been a pleasure, Titus. And don't forget, uh, you're supposed to buy my book. Titus always tells me, and somehow this time he forgot. He thinks I'm too American and modest, and I need to hustle more for my cash, my good, my advancement in the world. So i uh, lost in thought. Uh, there's a little bit on Preston Sturges towards the end, which is how this whole thing started, writing about Sullivan's travels. So anyway, uh, lost in thought, the hidden pleasures of an intellectual life. And please listen to the rest of our podcast. I think they work best in order. That's my thought. I would, I would listen to the Sturgis podcast in order. We probably should have said that at the beginning of each of them, but there you go. <laughs> now that you're at the end, you should know that you should have started at the beginning. Thanks so much, Titus. It's been a real pleasure. Well, Zina, I believe we have proved to our audience that you yourself are uh, like a Preston Sturgis leading <laughs> lady, having learned your lessons, doing more for yourself, and also helping out America. It's all to the good. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, it's true. Uh, well, anyway, uh, thanks so much. All the best.